0: my sister i call her my sister-in-lawless because my partner and i aren't married yet
1: so it makes sense. Oh, sound i like, like that sassy. so
2: much yeah I, I,
1: we call them the outlaws, the outlaws. Yes. <laughs> i have a mother outlaw yeah yeah
2: <laughs>
0: yeah i have a mother-in-lawless and a sister-in-lawless so um, that has but, so much of a better
2: ring to it oh i'm oh. absolutely gonna steal that
0: <laughs> yeah feel free to steal it feel free to steal it
1: Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric.
2: I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, in preparation for starting my new job as a metadata tagging specialist, I have been watching Disney movies nonstop with my son. And we were watching Sleeping Beauty today. And if you haven't rewatched the original animated Sleeping Beauty definitely worth revisiting the the music spectacular animation is great it's one of the best ones but not often on people's top list but the music is all tchaikovsky and it plays better as a grown-up i think i didn't like it very much as a teenager but there's a lot of good adult humor about teenagers and what teenagers are like and now that i have a son myself who's just about to become one it's getting funnier so yeah the disney rabbit hole do you do you either of you have a favorite animated disney movie
1: first of all i want to say that i think i have never seen sleeping beauty or if i did i was a child i it may be one of the only major disney animated releases i've not seen there's a few that i haven't seen and it's one of them i think But my favorite, I've said before on the podcast, you know, Little Mermaid. I mean, it has the best music. It has a prince named Eric. And and the Disney princess is super hot and can't speak, right? So,
2: (laughs) Oh, dear.
0: Gosh, I, I used to have a tradition with my sister, Leslie, when I was in high school, all the Disney films, you know, they, they would come out in the theater and I would always like take her to see every single one. And she was completely, she and my sister were completely addicted to The Little Mermaid. I probably saw The Little Mermaid a thousand times. My kids loved it too. So I watched it all over again when I was raising them. So that that, that movie always has uh, good memories for me, but I always... I always liked Sleeping Beauty the best. I felt like it was one of the more underrated princess films. I love the the style of it. You notice how with the different Disney princess movies, the animation is in a different style. And when you mm-hmm. watch it, you can kind of tell what era it came from because a lot of the other animation was in that same style in that same era. But I, I always love the design of Sleeping Beauty more than, more than anything, more than the music, more than the plot, you know, all, all of that other stuff, because, you know, I'm not going to go into consent right now, (laughs) but you know, out of the Disney princess films, I do. I think that Sleeping Beauty was probably my favorite.
1: If I haven't mentioned it on a previous podcast, I've been listening to Small Town Murder, one of my all-time favorites. It's just two guys talking about small towns and they give kind of the way we do like the background of the year and the background to the film. They give the background to the town. And then they go into a true crime story that happened in a small town, usually in the U.S. There have been some that they've done in the U.K. and Australia and whatnot, but mostly the U.S. The stories are crazy. The guys are comedians. So it works so much better for me than like the super serious true crime stuff. (laughs) They're making jokes about it all the way through. So it's like a real fun listen. They probably don't need... Our little podcast to plug them but if you haven't heard of it or haven't listened to it go check it out
0: so 2017 was a depressing year (laughs) one good thing that comes out of a bad year though are movies there were some great films that came out that year i mean wonder woman came out that year (laughs) do i need to say anything more that's like the only movie i cared about in 2017 no i'm just kidding blade runner 2049 thor ragnarok You know, I love some, you know, not so great films that came out like Baywatch. (laughs) You know, uh, but we also got John Wick chapter two. Call Me By Your Name. That one was, you know, a lot of people loved that film. Kingsman, that movie. I really like that one a lot, too. So that's all I'm going to say about 2017. I don't want to drag it on and, and ramble on. So there you go. 2017 in a nutshell. Bad
1: year. Great movies. Gutland production notes.
2: I pulled out a few interesting facts. First of which, it was shot in 35mm. So when you're looking at the beautiful farmland cinematography, one of the reasons why it's so stunning is because it's shot on real film. It was shot over 37 days in December of 2016 in Herborn, Germany. And the director, Govinda van Mela, directed only one other feature film, a documentary about a Luxembourg rock band called We Might As Well Fail. And I am not into music documentaries, but anything called We Might As Well Fail has officially piqued my interest. So I'm going to check that out.
1: Let me jump in real quick and say that the director of photography is the director's brother.
2: Yeah, it's a tight-knit group. And the director um, is mostly known as an editor, cinematographer, like a, a tech guy in the background. As I said, directing is not something he's known for. So... Instead of covering a ton of production notes, I wanted to talk a little bit about rural noir. In one of our previous episodes, I mentioned that one of the defining features of classic noir is that it's in an urban setting, and that a lot of the genre relies upon this sense of the city being this warren of rabbit holes of terrible crime and corruption and deep, dark corners with fog and the sewer system and, like... That whole sense of it being a web that is difficult to untangle. And rural noir plays on the same kinds of anxieties, but it's drawing from the fact that in our modern 21st century experience, we're so used to suburbia and the city that actually being in a remote place where your closest neighbor is a mile away and the intimacies of small town life evoke strangely the same kind of anxieties about the fear of the other. So rural noir is kind of this interesting spin off of the classic noir genre, drawing on literary traditions like Southern Gothic. Think of Flannery O'Connor, even William Faulkner. And that sense that things may look beautiful and natural and pristine, and then just below the surface, everything is getting a little bit septic. <laughs> Things are rotten just underneath. Gutland is a really good example of this rural noir.
1: Well, maybe we can right now have the discussion of whether or not this is a noir at all. Now, I get the rural noir thing. I often think of the the uh, scene in North by Northwest with the biplane and Cary Grant's in the middle of nowhere, you know, and mm-hmm. that is one example, but also like Cape Fear, And a really good example of classic rural noir is Detour, which Mm -hmm. everyone should check out if you haven't seen it. But this film does not meet my standards of being a noir, rural or otherwise, which I mentioned in our last episode. Noir means dark or black. And to me, that is the defining characteristic of noir film. And this does not have that. It has only a few scenes at night. Most of it happens during the day. So I'm going to throw that out there, but we can continue on with that discussion as we talk about the film.
2: See, I wonder whether the nightness and the cityness of classic noir are bound together and that in rural noir, you replace daytime for nighttime because rural noir is all about... You being able to see what's going on and just below the surface, you realize it's actually all wrong. And I don't think nighttime and rural noir would work together. Like think about North by Northwest, that famous shot. I mean, like that happens, you know, broad daylight.
1: Well, I'm going to call this film a thriller set in a rural area, much more like Witness, the Amish film with Harrison Ford as a police detective you know, and the wheat fields and all that. What it I do think it shares some elements in common with is another genre, though, which is folk horror, like Midsommar and Wicker Man and stuff like that. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so continue.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. And we should discuss what the difference is between rural noir and folk horror. But one of the things that the critics pointed out about this film is that there's sort of this surreal element that they saw in the film i'm curious as we dig into the plot whether we think it's surreal or not but i think the fact that the critics seem to to have some disagreement about what had actually happened in the film at least points to the level of psychological intrigue which is definitely part of the noir tradition, that sense of disorientation about yourself and others. And that is very prevalent in the film. And then also kind of a sense of economic decline. The abandoned house, the cobwebs and the rotten food, sort of pointing to to a sense of things being neglected, which you see in city noir as well um, with, you know, Explorations of kind of the seedy underbelly of the city. And here we're getting a seedy underbelly of of the town.
1: That aspect of surreal neglect and maybe even abuse also mixed with crime, that seediness and the surrealism make me think that there may be a David Lynch influence here because mm-hmm. it, that reminds yep. me very much of Blue Velvet. And there are scenes in this film that remind me very much of Blue Velvet. Now, as far as surrealism goes, there is a little bit of a tradition of bringing surreal elements into film noir type stuff. I think of Hitchcock's collaborations with Salvador Dali, but also for these neo-noirs, it seems to be a thing. At least these lowland neo-noirs, we saw it right out there, surrealistic scenes in The Fourth Man. Oh, um, yes. You know, with the eyeballs and all that jazz. <laughs> all right. So, In the plot of this, we have what appears to be a drifter. He's German, but he shows up in Luxembourg. The town, I think, is called... And sorry, all of our Luxembourgian fans, which I don't think we have any, but the usual standard disclaimer of this show, we mispronounce everything foreign. It's um, Shondesmillen? I think is the name of the town. (laughs) Anyway, his name is Jens or Jens. And he arrives in this farming community midway through a harvest looking for work. And he's carrying a duffel bag, very like Coen Brothers-esque. He's carrying a duffel bag, shows up in this town and looking for work. And initially, nobody wants to hire him. Everybody's leery of him. The mayor of the town tells basically one farmer that he's going to hire this guy And (laughs) we find out that the guy has a lot of secrets. Almost immediately, he goes to a beer hall and ends up sleeping with a farmer's daughter type. And then things get progressively stranger, but in a very slow-moving pastoral way.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that scene where he's sleeping with what turns out to be, I think, the mayor's daughter with the posters on the walls. It was it was a like a really interesting kind of comical moment where he's looking at these pictures of Johnny Depp and I think Patrick Swayze and like Luke all these, yeah, you know, <laughs> all these heartthrobs, and just like he's got this, you know, like what's going on? Kind and they like, were '80s posters person?
1: too. They were like '80s heartthrob, not 2017 posters, right? So yeah, yeah. They,
2: like like
0: somebody around my age. The kind of posters they would have had on their walls, because it was like Johnny Depp, Luke Perry, that era of nine. When they were so young, maybe... it was
1: those guys when they were young. Yeah,
0: yeah, when they were when they were young, like when Luke Perry was on nine zero two one zero, kind of young. So they were th- like that tig- goes Tiger to... Beat
1: magazine stuff, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and at first, when I saw that, I was like, okay, what year is this? Is she a minor? Like, what's going on? Because I thought the boy was her little brother most of the way through the film (laughs) so i figured out that the little boy was Boris was her son but well
2: i don't i wouldn't knock yourself there rosie i think we were not meant to really know what was going on Um... yeah
0: you were meant to feel a little bit dirty after that scene
1: you
2: were
0: yeah i feel like you were (laughs) because i mean i mean wouldn't you in a room full of posters like that I don't
2: know so you know for a second I was wondering you know are we gonna is this film gonna be like Hot Fuzz where it's like a parody <laughs> of this kind of film while it's being that kind of film of course it doesn't get to be nearly as magnificent as Hot Fuzz which oh my gosh I love now that movie I kind of so want to go rewatch because it's the same sort of like Guy shows up at a town, looks perfectly pristine, and then turns out the whole town's in on it or whatever. <laughs> but, um,
0: For the grace I could. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is one of three thieves that were involved in a bank heist, and they split up, went to separate places so that they wouldn't get caught, you know, because they're together, it's more likely. So they split up. He was the one who ended up with the money. Finds a small town, lands a job, eventually he buries the money in the woods
1: well which... what convinces him to bury the money actually is he he's staying in a trailer he's staying yeah. in a trailer and one of the local kids a couple of kids it looked like there was two kids but maybe it was only one no i like think it was two two
0: boys that two boys that...
1: they broke in his trailer and they were playing in there and then they escaped like mm-hmm. out his window right when he came home apparently they didn't find the money but one of them dropped his toy box, which had like little soldiers and it had matchbox cars. And then like a bunch of nudes, (laughs) nude photos. Yeah. of of Women. (laughs) But they didn't look posed. They looked like, I don't know how to describe it. Kind of caught in the
0: act, but.
1: Yeah. They may have been
0: partying at the time. They're like, whatever, take my picture. I got my shirt off.
2: One of the reviews I read suggested that, this is a circular narrative and that it actually turns out that, that it kind of like goes back to the beginning at the end. And one of the things that they pointed to was the scene where he's hanging out with all these women and they're like, you know, comparing each other's breasts and like, you know, someone's got implants and do they look real? And like, doesn't matter if they look real or if they're real or not. And at the time I was like, what is going on? And, And then, when I got to the end of the film and with the photographs and sort of the sense of like, maybe how is he involved in this? Or do the women do this all the time? Could someone explain what was going on in that scene?
1: So, I think I might know too, but I want to hear what you have to say. So, these are the farmer's wives, and it's a small town and they're bored. (laughs) I have a feeling that they have all been sleeping with and or abused by one guy who later goes missing that it's his empty house, George, but George Obermeyer. Yeah. But they're very casual around each other. Like I think they all know that they were all, they have this bond in common. Sex is all the women in this. It's none of the men except for our main protagonist. There's a lot of boredom and sexual repression going on there. And Hmm, there's the new guy, you know? And so I think, one, they're comfortable flashing their breasts to each other. And two, they're comfortable doing that when he's there. Which is a great time for us to take a little break before we mull this over, because this is going to go deep. (laughs) When he's doing this, he just walks through the kitchen, asks for a beer. Then he goes and sits down and is drinking his beer. Alone in a different lounge that nobody else is in. Let's all go to the lobby,
2: let's all go to the lobby, let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a
1: treat. For this, there could be no other choice than beer. Luxembourg is not as well known for its beers as Belgium is, especially outside of the region. But there are a lot of different kinds of beer that are consumed in Luxembourg, and it has a long brewing tradition. It was down to only a few major breweries before the craft beer movement hit Luxembourg. However, this is not a craft beer drinking crowd. This is basically your working class farmers, and they're probably going to be drinking a light lager, maybe a Kolsch. I thought about doing a Kolsch, but that's a German beer. I thought about doing a Belgian Wit, but that's a Belgian beer. I finally settled on a light lager Dekerk, or dekirch. I don't know how you say it. A very widely consumed beer in Luxembourg. I was unable to identify the label on the bottle that he was drinking, but it could have been a dekirch. I don't know. Anyway, that's my recommendation Probably have more than one, actually. <laughs> All right, back to the film. This whole thing reminds me of the writing of Jim Thompson and David Goodis, especially. David Goodis was a, a writer of Dust Bowl era crime stuff with definite dreamlike, surreal like imagery in his writing. He gets warned, Jens does, as long as he doesn't sleep with the wives, he'll be okay, you know? <laughs> Plus, he's told he is going to learn the trumpet. He's like, given a trumpet, yeah. he's going to learn it. That That's just a given. If you live here, you're going to play the trumpet, all right? You're going to play
0: in the <laughs> damn band.
1: <laughs> um, so his cohorts come back at one point and threaten him, or one of them does. One Lee's does again. the
0: first time.
1: Yep. Yeah. And... And then the kids, we heard that they were setting off firecrackers in the hayloft, stuff like that. Well, at one point, the kids actually do start a fire and their solution to punish the kids is to chain them up and drop them into like a, what do you call it? It looks what, like a well or something. I guess all the sludge runoff of the farm goes in there or something like that. And he intervenes and like unchains one of the kids and sends him home before I guess they do it to the other one. We we don't actually see it. happen. Yeah, They
0: made him walk away. They were like, no, this is you're not going to tell us how to parent our kids. Go
1: next day at work. He goes out and they claim to smell a dead animal in the field and say they can't harvest with that dead animal in the field. And they're going to go investigate. We'll take this side and that side. You go right up the middle. And so there's just standing there when he goes up the middle. Now, what do we say on this podcast? Never go into a cornfield. Yes, Nothing, nothing ever. good ever happens in a cornfield. And here nothing we are good. again. And sure enough, he gets deep into this cornfield and the thresher starts up. Of course, he can't <sighs> see where it is. He can only hear where it is. At the end, they play this off like, oh, we thought you had made it out the other side or something like, do we believe them? Were they trying to kill him or not? And if so, why? I don't know
0: because they did have a dead animal in the back of the truck when they drove away after they picked him up. I didn't notice that. They did. And it really leaves you guessing like, were they telling the truth or were they messing with him? You know, like, don't overstep any boundaries. Don't mess with us or we will mess with you. And I feel like this was kind of one of those moments where they were putting their foot down with him. Like, don't.
2: I'm with Rosie. Yeah, I don't think they intended to kill him, but I think they definitely intended to scare him.
0: Yeah, they were sending a clear message, like "Don't fuck
1: with us." Well, one of the wives did attempt to seduce him. Yeah, like at one point. So who that was so who, weird too. Who we know, or we are pretty sure, was sleeping with Obermeyer. Obermeyer is that Ostermeyer?
0: Yeah. Ostermeyer, you were right.
1: So this has to be intentional. It couldn't have been a goof. There's one point where jens is kind of freaking out and the farmer's daughter lucy is her name i think yeah
2: played by vicky creeps and she's awesome in this film
1: she says george what's wrong yeah george what's the matter i think is is exactly what she says to him and he he doesn't even think it's strange that she's calling him george
2: is that the first time she calls him george or is it actually when they're in bed together
0: I thought she called him George the first time when they were sleeping together. And I was like, well, that's not
1: creepy at all. That didn't happen until he starts getting rough with her. Yes. Mm -hmm. Normally she was still calling him Jens until that happens. My theory behind all this is that George was kind of into the rough sex thing and was having it with all of the women in the town. And basically the town banded together and said, yeah, we're not having that. And they... Killed him because we later find in the same nasty sewer pit that they were going to put the kids in, he finds the body of a man who we presume, I presumed anyway, was George. Yeah. George, we know, disappeared at some point. Just disappeared. It was a big mystery. You know, everything in his house was gone. Only the dog was still there. And he hadn't made any plans for anyone to take care of the dog or anything like that. Lucy ends up feeding it and taking care of it. So that's my theory about what happens. Up until we get to our tranquilizing dart. That's when things take a major left turn in this. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh that my was gosh. Very weird.
1: <laughs> Normally we do no spoilers on this show, but we've gotten so deep into this one, and it's impossible to talk about it without spoilers. So you have been warned. And this is where I think we get into midsomer type territory. I think mm-hmm. that the town all had it planned from the beginning, or at least the men of the town were like, okay. We need a, somebody to take George's place. We're going to choose this guy. But of course, we got to get him cleaned up. And what did they do to him on that operating table? I'm a little... Oh,
2: it's just a haircut. That's all. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. You got a I horizontal
1: haircut? Yes. What do we think happened to him?
2: I'm
0: not <laughs> sure, but I got to tell you it makes sense to me what you're saying, Eric. And I feel like the town kind of once Jens got into the town, Joss basically took him under his wing, found him a job and then covered for him to the police. I feel like there was a plan there. Like, yeah, we need to replace this guy, but we need to groom him to be the right replacement. You're going to learn well, trumpet.
1: Not only did he cover him for the police, the whole town banded together and killed the other two robbers. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and Covered it up, you know, well,
2: yeah. not only did they kill the robbers, they let their dogs rip one of the robbers to pieces. <laughs> like yeah, the town is seriously vicious. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Very, very vicious. You got to wonder, like, was everybody involved? You know, was, was Lucy involved when she first seduced Jens? Did she see this new guy? And then maybe Josh like go over there and go talk to him. <laughs> and then fast forward to getting him a job, making him play the trumpet, getting him used to the lifestyle in the town starts going by the name George because Lucy just starts calling him that and he's like, okay, I'm George now. But he's George now.
1: He doesn't seem the same before and after that. Did they oh, yeah. did they lobotomize him? Did they castrate him? What did they do? Yeah. That's...
2: I I wonder if he's just still drugged out and that he's in this very suggestible drugged out phase. Because I think when he goes to dig up the Buried loot. I think he really believes that that's where it is and he's just legitimately having trouble finding it. Not that he can't remember it all because he's been completely mind fucked. I think he really thinks that it's buried there and that he's just not finding it very quickly and that it causes a problem. So I think there's still some yens in there, but mm-hmm. that when he's at that table, he's still just coming out of this drugged out phase and he's like, oh, maybe I'm George now.
1: I don't know. Even in the final scene where he's playing the trumpet, he does not seem the same. And it's not just because he's got a shave and a haircut.
2: I don't think he's been lobotomized.
1: I don't think he's been lobotomized either, but I do think something happened to him.
2: I think he decides to embrace the town. Like, I think he just decides to go with it.
1: Well, that brings up something. Now, I've never studied German, although I grew up in a community with a rich German heritage. So I don't know, but I believe... Gutland translates to good land. It right? does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like is he embracing like this way of life? This is the good land as opposed to wherever he came from the city, you know?
0: I know that him going by George went about in a surreal way, but if this were the United States, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I'm George now." Nobody knows Jens, guys. I'm George now. But in this case, he was like, okay, you want to call me George? I'll be George here.
2: (laughs) What I really like about the ending, and this is, if we want to go back to our debate about, is this a noir film or not? um, It's very rare in a film in this genre that you get to go through the moment of, wow, things are creepier and more menacing than they seem. And usually that's where the film ends thinking about the fourth man for instance like it ends at that feeling of and she's just like going off to find the next victim like it usually ends at that point where things aren't resolved and so it's kind of interesting that this film goes through that moment of like okay it's official the town's really creepy it is not as nice a place as it seems and we go through that moment of like oh there's menacing stuff in the future to nope he's part of the band and he's an expert trumpet player and his wife smiles at him and he's all happy. And it's like very, it's, it's a different kind of unsettling, like not the sense of menacing things are coming to get you, but the, oh, he just embraced it. (laughs) Like he just, he's just accepting the menacing future. And that's somehow worse.
1: (laughs) I, again, I am sorry to keep bringing this up, but For some reason, I can't shake its similarity to folk horror films, especially The Wicker Man and Midsommar. There's this element of city folk coming to the country and they don't really understand it. And then the horror eventually happens and they're broadsided by it. That seems to be similar in all these films. This one has that little extra bit where it comes out the other side, but it's not clear that it comes out the other side good or bad. I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel. Like, are we supposed to feel happy for him that he's got this whole new life? Or are we supposed to feel "Eh, things are not going to be as smooth as he thinks they're going to be? Or has he become like a Stepford husband? You know, I kind (laughs) of got that kind of vibe off of it, you know?
0: Yeah, reading that some of the reviews i did hear a lot of comparisons to the stepford wives
1: um yeah, yeah it has that element to it right yeah
0: yeah totally does and the surrealism um in my layman's uneducated opinion is kind of subtle sometimes like you don't even realize it's surrealism until later on in the film like with the pictures in the beginning in the pictures you don't see their face in the pictures. And you see the whole thing. It's not like they're showing a weird angle where it's cutting off part of it. You see the whole thing, and you don't see the faces of the women that are in these pictures, and, and you do. Yeah. And that's it when, makes it, you that's think, when it
1: all starts to like come together. Obviously, that's why they did it that way. But It makes you think when you first see the pictures that they were non-consensually taken, and then later when you see the faces, you seem to think maybe they were more in on this, you know? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the boys that got into his camper wasn't one of the boys Boris. If it was Boris, it would make sense that Boris would have that tin because chances are Boris is George's son, like the real George's son. And that would have come out of the house that they were living in.
1: Interesting theory, possibly.
0: My thoughts. Our George was with Lucy, but he was with fucking everybody, every woman in that town. And eventually like that was one of their secrets that came out. And they're like, no, George, you can't do that. You're done. You know, you're not going to go sleeping with everybody and and make our wives disinterested in us. You got to go. That's what I think happened. And also another surrealistic moment was when he first saw the body come up out of the well on George's property. It looked just like Jen's. We saw one picture of George and it could have been him, but it looked just like fresh shaven gins. Did you notice that? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so in my interpretation of the film, he's a replacement for George's, but there is the circular idea that Johanna brought up, where is he in some sort of weird loop? You know, was that actually him? You know, is was he always George to begin with? You know, Um. I don't know. Yeah,
2: that I I don't know if the film fully supports that idea, but I kinda like that interpretation just because it it sort of explains why the film is hard to follow and kinda disorienting and and I I don't know. There I don't know why I wanna be charitable towards this film, but I did enjoy watching it and so I wanna I- I want to support the idea so, that it's more clever than
1: it seems. <laughs> we all give this a thumbs up because I definitely do.
0: I definitely do. I actually wanted to watch it a second time before we recorded this podcast. I just ran out of time. Just yeah. so th- I could see if I could pick up some more stuff that maybe I missed the first time I watched it. But it's definitely a good film. I lo- weird, I had a I really enjoyed it.
1: The weird thing about this film is that it's both very slow moving and also very fast moving at the same time. He shows up in the town it's not long after that there's the first sex scene which by the way speaking of things that move super fast they have she's like (laughs) you're coming back with me they don't even take off their clothes right they're like there's no foreplay (laughs) or anything boom they're at it and then like yeah then he's like already part of the town and involved in stuff in the town so it moves both simultaneously very fast and very slow at the same time it's strange that way
0: I think that the town took the money. I think that was part of their payoff for grooming this guy to be George's replacement. They saw an opportunity and took it. They were like, we need somebody to replace George. This is a small town. We all work together on our farms. We need another body. And Lucy needs a baby daddy. It must be meant to be that this guy just shows up. And they groom him down to the point of teaching him trumpet and cutting his hair. And you see the progression of how, you know, when he shows up, he's looking a whole lot like Colin uh what is it Colin Farrell Colin. yes okay thank you yeah so he shows up looking a whole lot like Colin Farrell and in the end of the movie looks like the original George clean shaven short hair playing trumpet looking good whatever Lucy gets her happy ending she's got this good looking guy to help raise her baby with in a house that's in decent shape again
1: <laughs> You know? I actually thought he looked like a young Liam Neeson but that's oh, just yeah yeah you know.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I could see now,
1: that. I prefer to think of the money as still being buried. I think of it as a community that values other things and nobody's really bothered with the money, whether it's there or not. Like he went to go dig it up, like Johanna was saying, was just couldn't remember the exact spot and it's still there. I think that their their main target was him, you know, mm-hmm. and getting him to be part of their band and like, you know, they value other stuff rather than, it's not a materialistic culture.
2: Yeah. It really does sit kind of in in between genres. And I can see, you know, now that you've mentioned Midsummer, there is a lot that it has in common there and that it kind of occupies the space between noir and folk horror. And that makes it kind of interesting. I could not stop thinking about Hot Fuzz while I was watching it. And so I think I have to go watch that today. Um, but...
1: On that note, we'll wrap it up. I just want to say we are desperately in need of people writing and reviewing us. So please do that. Maybe even subscribe. If you know someone who hasn't listened to the show, tell them to listen to the show. If you want to talk to us, you can email us at GC8 podcast. That's letter G letter C number eight podcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group to discuss more theories about these films After our overly long podcast episodes, if there's anything left to say (laughs) about these films, there's still, you know, you can come and tell us your theory about uh, what actually happened in this movie. Let us know. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off.